Welcome to C. diff spores and more with your host, Nancy Kerala. We are here to discuss C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and other related healthcare topics. Now, here is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome to C. diff spores and more. I'm your host, Nancy Kerala, here to welcome you to the ninth annual International C. diff Conference and Health Expo, November fourth and fifth, two thousand twenty-one. Enjoy the episodes. Acurex Pharmaceuticals is developing a new class of antibiotics for infections caused by bacteria listed as priority pathogens by the WHO, CDC, and FDA. These include C. diff and a variety of gram-positive infections and their candidates. To view investor information, see case studies, news, and online media, visit acurexpharma.com. Acurex Pharmaceuticals is the audio sponsor of the 9th Annual International C. diff Conference and Health Expo. Visit acurxpharma.com. Acurex Pharmaceuticals. Uh, Dr. Sahil Kahana, uh, and you are set to go, Sahil, uh, while I open a slide for you. Thank you, Rick, and uh, thank you, Nancy, for giving me um, this uh, honor of speaking for the next few minutes. On behalf of the CDF Foundation, and I would say the entire community and the entire world who suffers from CDF uh, infection or can suffer from CDF infection, we're honored and delighted to present with the Dr. Dale Girding Lifetime Achievement Award. And the first one is going to be presented to Dr. Dale Girding. Um, today for his outstanding vision, dedication, and commitment for advancement of CDPCL care. So Nancy gave me five minutes to talk about Dr. Gerding. I think that it may take me until tomorrow morning, but I found a few things, and some of them are very interesting. Dr. Gerding is a professor of medicine uh, emeritus at Loyola University in the Heinz VA, where he has practiced for 40 years as an infectious disease doctor and an epidemiologist. But you know what I found? that at heart he's a gastroenterologist. His first ever publications were on viral hepatitis. Um, he looked at antibiotic concentrations in peritoneal fluid. He was publishing on hepatitis B carriers uh, in the New England Journal in the early 1980s. So I think, Dr. Gooding, you've probably been a gastroenterologist at heart and then found C. diff infection, I would say, as something to your calling. I looked through a lot of Dr. Gooding's early publications and things that he published more than 40 years ago, are still relevant in day today's world. He published on the difficulty on, of gram stain on diagnosing C. diff infection, and we're still worried about how do we diagnose C. diff infection. Dr. Gerding published the first ever randomized control trial of metronidazole versus vancomycin looking at C. diff infection. And I think between then and now, um, the way I look at his career, he's published everything C. diff, from diagnostics to epidemiology, to clinical care, to clinical guidelines. And with all of this, Dr. Gerding has had over 400 peer-reviewed publications, book chapters, review articles. He's been sitting on editorial boards for many, many journals. He's been the president of the Society of Healthcare Epidemiology of America. Um, he's a fellow of the IDSA, master of the ACP, um, several awards, including a merit award from the VA, the William Middleton Award, which is the highest research award given by the Department of Federal Affairs. Um, and uh, more recently, he's had a discovery on non-toxigenic C. difficile, and we've all seen the high-profile papers. And I think one really uh, comes, uh, as a physician, when one gets 
a creator of the Rear Award from a law association. What I think you've made it, Dr. Gerding. Um, but all jokes apart, I would say he's been a mentor, a friend, uh, and a colleague to many of us on this call and throughout the world. But I have to share one last story in the last 30 seconds. I first met Dr. Gerding when serendipitously I shared a cab ride with him and my mentor, Daryl Party from Galveston, Texas to Houston, Texas. And we had an hour with each other in a closed space. And I was so enamored. I was like, I'm with a celebrity here today. And it felt like that we had a connection. He gave me so many wise words that I still carry with me. Um, this was about 10 years ago. And since then, uh, we've written papers together. And I'm personally humbled. And I thank you on behalf of uh, the entire CDIF community and the entire infectious disease and GI community for everything that you've uh, done for all of us. So thank you, Dr. Gerding, and congratulations on the first of the many Dr. Gerding Lifetime Achievement Awards uh, that we give to you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Sahil. I'm, I'm really honored, and, and thank you for those very kind words. And I want to thank Nancy and the CDF Foundation for this award. And uh, I, I really uh, am not sure I'm deserving of this, but um, I have to congratulate the CDF Foundation on this annual meeting because it's one of my favorite CDF meetings of all time because it combines academic presentations and industry presentations in a manner that allows you to have a kind of a free-form uh, discussion and, and get the latest updates from both academia and, and industry in this meeting. Um, congratulations, Nancy. This is an outstanding meeting. And by the way, uh, Sahil, you did hand this to me. Here it is in person. Thank you. The, yes. the trials of doing a handoff of an award uh, on the web. <laughs> All right. But thank you so much. So, you'll thank you for that introduction. And it's with pleasure, and I could go on and on uh, to introduce my friend and colleague uh, who I've known and worked with for the last 30 years is Dale Gerding. Just keep in mind that he retired 10 years ago. <laughs> you know, go. Oh, at any rate, the title of his talk is Adjunctive Therapy for CDI to Prevent Recurrence, uh, What Works and Practical Issues. Dale? Well, thank you, Stu, and thank you uh, to the organizers of the program for inviting me to talk. You're probably wondering, what the heck is this about? Um, but we've heard some outstanding presentations uh, thus far in the meeting about um, adjunctive or add-on therapies as well as uh, primary therapies with antibiotics that are effective against C. diff. But um, I think a lot of uh, kind of practical issues haven't been addressed as yet, and I thought I would talk about them a little bit. I don't have a whole lot of data, but there have been a couple of review papers that have recently come out addressing this topic, and I'll, I'll mention those as we go along. Um, I do have a few disclosures. I am a consultant advisory board member for Destiny Pharma. Still have a couple of VA grants with Stu as a co-PI, uh, and I'm on the uh, steering committee for another VA cooperative trial on fecal transplants. 
So why is this an important topic? Well, the, the ongoing concern about recurrent C. diff is, uh, is, is really the primary focus, I think, of the meeting thus far. Uh, and then multiple different approaches to prevention of recurrence are out there, most of which are added to antibiotic treatment. And this is really what I would term a paradigm shift in that it requires not one but two treatments uh, for this disease. And I think uh, there aren't many diseases that we have to write two prescriptions for, but I think this is going to be one in the very near future. And already it is an issue uh, because Bezuotuximab is on the market and is probably the first of these adjunct uh, therapies. There have been two recent uh, publications, a systematic review and a network meta-analysis. And you might wonder, what is a network meta-analysis? Uh, I'll try to explain it as we go along because it was new to me as well. And, uh, but it basically takes trials that have placebo comparators and compares them to each other. Um, so we think, as, as you've heard with really excellent presentations thus far, that we're very close to more FDA approvals for products that are uh, similar and that will be adjunctive. There's two types of CDI prevention. I just wanted to be clear on this. Primary prevention, which is really the venue of uh, vaccines, uh, but also could be the venue of uh, some of these biotherapeutics or uh, manufactured organisms. Certainly it's been a target of probiotics over the years, but uh, with great controversy over whether probiotics really are effective or not. So not going to talk about primary prevention. We're going to talk about secondary prevention, which is the prevention of recurrence of C. diff, and that's either the first recurrence or multiple recurrences. So what are the current approaches? Well, we have single treatment agents, antibiotics. Uh, we know we have fidaxomycin available to us, which is a lower recurrence rate. Uh, we've heard a presentation on ritonilazole, which I used to think was hard to pronounce, but now after Kevin's uh, presentation, we have a Polstat, which I'm really struggling with. But uh, these all look like antibiotics that are likely to reduce recurrence per se. Now, adjunct or add-on treatments, uh, we have follow-on antibiotics, which uh, are still mentioned in the IDSA SHEA guideline. That would be, say, treatment with vancomycin followed by rifaximin for uh, several weeks as a, quote, chaser, as, as Stu likes to call it. Uh, we have fecal microbiota transplants. We've heard a great deal about them, uh, and these are derived from human stool donors. We have what I like to term biotherapeutics. These are manufactured live organisms. We heard today about VE303 and uh, uh, this con consortium of uh, uh, spore-forming bacteria that are manufactured, uh, but also I'd like to include in that uh, non-toxigenic C. diff, which is a single organism, spore-forming bacteria, the same strain uh, that causes C. diff infection, but lacking all of the genes for any toxin production, and I'll say a little bit more about that as we go along. Uh, monoclonal antibodies, bethotuximab is uh, FDA-approved. Uh, probably illustrate some of the issues around 
adjunctive therapy in terms of how it's utilized and when it's utilized. And then probiotics and prebiotics, which are available over the counter, of questionable benefit for prevention of recurrent CDI, with the possible exception of something called oligofructose, which is a prebiotic, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. So what are the issues around adjunctive therapy? Well, obviously it has to be efficacious. This is really going to be important, but it has to be safe in addition. So does it work? Is it safe? And then there's the issue of prescribing two agents for the treatment of CDI. This is where the new paradigm comes in. There's timing of this adjunctive therapy. Should you give it with the first episode? or should it be uh, reserved for recurrent CEI episodes? Uh, currently, FMT is restricted to these recurrent uh, CEI episodes, uh, whereas uh, other products may not be. Uh, the cost, obviously, of prevention treatment is critical. And then insurance and third-party coverage, as well as access uh, to these products in hospitals and pharma pharmacies through their formularies or, in the case of as well, took some have the need to have an infusion service available. Uh, all our issues around this. So, what are the most promising adjunctive approaches based on, on one of these systematic reviews in anaerobe? Well, monoclonal antibodies uh, came out on the top of their list. Even though their efficacy is modest uh, in terms of reducing recurrence, FMT was uh, mentioned, oligofructose as mentioned, and as is non-toxigenic CDS strain M3. Uh, this is a strain that we developed in our laboratory and uh, is now going through the process of development for phase three testing. And then finally, Saccharomyces boulardii, for which there is some data. Now I'm going to show you some of the data that we have for from this review paper. So for FMT, uh, studies that were done included um, Camerata here, uh, which was FMT versus vancomycin taper. And you can see that uh, when the uh, bars are blue, that this is uh, significantly demonstrating improvement with the uh, test article compared to the comparator. Uh, you can see that there was another study here by HOTA in which vancomycin taper was compared to FMT and was not significantly effective. And then the Van Nude trial from the uh, New England Journal of Medicine, the first really to be published on FMT, uh, showed benefit when compared to vancomycin. It showed additional benefit when compared to vancomycin plus bolivage. However, the numbers are very small. And then there's the uh, Colleen Kelly's trial of donor FMT versus autologous FMT from, from the patient's own stool, uh, which did not quite reach uh, statistical significance. In terms of monoclonal antibodies, actuximab in the phase two trial was not effective. Actuximab in a large phase three trial was not effective, but actuximab plus bezlo, the combination in the phase two trial, significantly effective. Actuximab plus bezlo versus placebo in the large phase three trial, uh, very effective. And again, bezlotuximab alone, very effective versus placebo in Mark Wilcox, New England Journal 
on the throttle. Now, what about uh, in this um, particular paper, they cover probiotics and others in a single category. So probiotic mix versus placebo in this case was not, not significant. And then uh, three different doses of non-toxigenic C. diff. You can see that a low dose of just 10,000 spores a day compared to placebo did not reach significance, but 10 million spores a day for seven days versus placebo did reach uh, high statistical significance. And the high dose for 14 days did not add anything uh, to the seven-day regimen. Here's the oligofructose study. It's uh, not a particularly large study, but in, published in 2005 by John Brazier's group. I'll talk a little bit more about what that study found. Here are the two telelomer trials, uh, neither one. Telelomer is a um, binding agent for toxins in the gut, a polymer that was not effective in two different trials. Uh, immune wave uh, derived from uh, cow's milk was not better than metronidazole in another trial. Uh, Saccharomyces boulardii in one trial by McFarland was significant but then in a follow-on trial by Sorales was not significant. And finally, the probiotic uh, Lactobacillus plantarum versus placebo in this very small trial was not significant. There are other probiotic trials not mentioned here, and I'm not clear on why those might have been left out of this particular review. Well, what about a network meta-analysis? So uh, this is a direct uh, figure from the paper by Pachos, it's not at all an animal. Each node here corresponds to an intervention. The node size is proportional to the number of participants. So here you see placebo, the biggest node. And all of these uh, compounds, CIR-109, Rifaximin, RBX-2660, probiotics, oligofructose, non-toxigenic C. diff, and then the, the uh, monoclonal antibodies are compared to placebo, but in the case of uh, monoclonal antibodies, they are also compared to each other and compared to the combination of the two. So each line represents a direct comparison. The width of the line is proportional to the number of patients seen, and the number of trials for each of these products is shown here with the most trials for probiotics. So what did, what did this network meta-analysis show? So the efficacy ranking of these adjunctive treatments showed oligofructose, which many of you will be very surprised about, I was, uh, and I'll talk a little bit more about it. Uh, Non-toxigenic C. diff, uh, highly um, mentioned, and uh, then followed by the uh, combination of the monoclonal antibodies, rifaximin, RBX, and in fairness, these are only published trials, so CIR-109, original trial which in which it was not successful was the trial that was looked at here. And you might ask the question, what does this percentage mean? And I'm still not quite clear about it. In the analysis, the percentage under the cumulative was called supra. And another way of interpreting it is it represents the probability that a treatment is among the best options for efficacy. So uh, they also assessed 
safety in these trials, but I wanted to show you first oligofructose here. This is a uh, fructooligosaccharide. It's a food additive used commercially in many products such as yogurts and margarine. And taken orally, it enters the large bowel largely intact, so non-absorbed in the small bowel. Uh, and it is metabolized by bifidobacteria in the colon. And the bifidobacteria numbers beef up considerably in the presence of oligofructose. And that's thought to be the mechanism by which it might uh, prevent C. diff. Large doses, on the other hand, greater than 12 grams a day uh, of oligofructose cause bloating, abdominal pain, and are laxatives. Not exactly what you would be seeking out in a treatment to prevent C. diff. But in a randomized double-blind trial, compared to sucrose, it reduced diarrhea, not C. diff diarrhea, but C. diarrhea from 34% to 8%. And so you can see here the diarrhea rate with oligofructose compared to the sucrose uh, placebo. And then this Kaplan-Meier survival curve. This was published by Lewis, who is uh, a member of John Brazier's laboratory in, uh, in the UK. And oligofructose was also tested as a primary preventive of antibiotic-associated diarrhea by the same group at the same time. And in 435 evaluable patients entered into the trial, 27% had antibiotic-associated diarrhea, 49, 11% developed CDI, and there was no difference between the oligofructose group and the uh, sucrose group, which was the comparator in these trials. So we have a mixed finding of failure to prevent primary uh, CDI and success in preventing recurrence, when normally just the opposite is the more difficult challenge. Now, with regard to safety, oligofructose did not have enough safety data to be included in the list, but NTCD, uh, and, I, and I should mention non-toxigenic C. diff operates differently than microbiome replacement therapies in that it doesn't have anything to do with the microbiome. What the goal of NTCD therapy is to replace the toxigenic strain of C. diff with a non-toxigenic strain, which is harmless. Once that strain occupies the gut, uh, it keeps out toxigenic C. diff. The microbiota is on its own to recover uh, on its own, which it apparently does, but we don't have uh, good data for that as yet. Uh, Bezlotuximab was rated highly uh, high in the safety category, as was Bezlo, followed by Rifaximin, RBX, and Sear 109. Uh, probiotics were ranked as uh, not very safe at all in this uh, trial. So what other issues are there around uh, adjunctive therapy? Well, the big one, I think, is uh, prescribing two agents for treatment of, of CDI. This has got to be a new paradigm. Bezlotuximab requires administration intravenously during the treatment uh, period using the antibiotic, uh, which frequently makes it difficult to access. Uh, cost is another factor, obviously. Timing is a Clear uh, issue here, we would like to see first CDI episode uh, treatments that would prevent people from having even their first episode of recurrence. Uh, but currently, recurrent 
episodes are primarily the target of adjunctive therapy. The cost element has to be addressed, and then the third party and insurance coverage has to be addressed, as well as access in the institutions. So how will prescribing two agents uh, go down? How will prescribers address having to write two tre treatment prescriptions for a treatment of CDI? I, I don't think we have uh, much experience with that except in multi-antibiotic treatments. Uh, here we would be using one treatment, an antibiotic, to treat the symptoms of the patient and a second uh, prescription to prevent the recurrence of symptoms. And how will patients feel about taking two different medications and, and will they get them straight? Uh, if the um, adjunctive therapy has to be started during treatment, they need to follow that prescription. If it has to be started after treatment, as, as many of them have to, including FMT, uh, products because of the washout period required for the antibiotic. Can the antibiotic treatment and the recurrence uh, treatment be packaged and can they be put together in a combined product? Interesting concept. FDA, of course, will require that uh, you clearly show the benefit of the combined package over uh, individual elements alone, uh, but it would also require FDA approval of a combination pa package. So that that remains an, an item that will have to be addressed as well. And timing is, I think, very important. And there's a huge advantage for patients if recurrent CDI can be presented with the treatment of the first episode. Um, but on the other hand, there will be interest on the part of payers in reserving adjunctive treatment until the patient has had at least a first recurrence of CDI. So it'll be imperative that you be able to demonstrate effectiveness and safety, as well as reasonable uh, pharmacoeconomics. So cost, efficacy, safety will have to be a compelling, I think, to support extensive adoption of adjunction treatment for the first episode of CDI. In conclusion, there's multiple modalities of adjunctive treatment uh, very thoroughly presented at this meeting to prevent recurrent CDI. They're under development and already one of them is available. Safety and efficacy of these new adjunctive treatments will be essential if they're going to be adopted. And clinicians and patients have to adjust to a new uh, treatment paradigm of uh, getting two scripts uh, for the treatment of C. diff. And eventually cost factors coupled with safety and efficacy will ultimately dictate the adoption of adjunctive treatment. And thank you to the C. diff Foundation to Sahil Khanna for presentation of this award and for conduct of this meeting and inviting me to participate. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products. EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes. Trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com.
Glenn Tillotson is a consultant for GST Micro LLC, and the title of his talk is Antibiotic Stewardship and Clostridioides Difficile. Thanks, Stu. Thanks, Stu. Hopefully you can all hear me. Um, yeah. First of all, I'd like to thank the, uh, the organizers. I'd like to thank Nancy and the organizers for inviting me to this meeting. Um, it's always a pleasure to uh, mix with fellow uh, microbiologists and, and diarrheologists. So it's, it's going to be a, been a wonderful meeting. I'd like to talk about diff and antibiotics. We've heard a lot about different antibiotics over the last, uh, last couple of days. But I think we all appreciate that antibiotic exposure is a key driver. Um, okay, sorry. Um, antibiotics are a key driver for the selection of C. diff. But there are differences between the different classes of, of, of antibiotics, with third and fourth generation cephalosporins and carbapenems being associated most strongly, but also quinolones and lincosamides, clindamycin, also are linked to, to uh, CDI. There are small differences within a class, but basically broad brush strokes apply. Interestingly, the sulfur drugs and the tetracyclines have a low incidence for selecting CDI. There's a there is a key way to reducing CDI, and that's to modify antibiotic use and, and behavior. Uh, and this is where antibiotic stewardship programs really come in. ASPs, antibiotic stewardship programs, uh, can really help clinicians improve the clinical outcomes and minimize the harms by improving antibiotic prescriptions. There is also discussion about you know, the, the cost savings that can be associated with ASPs. But I think the focus nowadays is to really improve outcomes and other uh, you know, approaches as well. So hospital antibiotic stewardship programs can increase infection cure rates while also reducing treatment failures, C. diff infections, adverse effects, antibiotic resistance per se, and obviously, hospital costs and lengths of stay. And those all are interwoven into what is a, an effective antibiotic stewardship program. The CDC, several years ago now, uh, 2013, I think, uh, developed the core elements of antibiotic stewardship. And these are, as you can see, a leadership, by, a leadership commitment in the hospital, accountability for what you do, pharmacy expertise to help uh, really pull together the benefits and the negatives of, of different antibiotics, expertise of our pharmacy colleagues, obviously, taking positive action, actually, you know, not just talking the talk, but walking the talk, tracking, let's see how, what changes you do actually have an effect, reporting, telling people what you've done and how you've done it, and then ultimately, one of the key parts of the whole stewardship system is education. It's not just a matter of ticking boxes and this is what we've done this week. It's a matter of an entire multidisciplinary team working together to actually educate and inform the way in which we use antibiotics. And you know that these CDC core elements are easily accessible. You've got put the link on the bottom of, of the slide. And I think it, <laughs> It's actually, these are all common sense, but it's not until we do them all together that we actually have a true stewardship program. 
JCOP, that uh, wonderful organization that manages in our hospitals across the, the US, and they did a survey. Um, they looked at uh, all of the hospitals across the US in 2018, and they did show that 85% of acute care hospitals reported that they have been seeing all seven of the core elements. And that was a double of 2014, which was compared, you know, 41%. So in a period of four years, we doubled the number of institutions practicing antibiotic stewardship. Well, I'm going to go into the part now is, do these ASPs work? Um, there was a, a study conducted by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality Safety, and they, they studied 437 institutions. And they collected antibiotic data from all of these hospitals. The, the primary objective was to assess overall antibiotic use, so that's days of antibiotic therapy. And the way in which they, they developed their, their program was to encourage the st staff to participate in webinars over a 12-month period. And these webinars can you know, really covered a very wide range of topics. Stewart, just describing what stewardship is, the science of safety and enhancing teamwork, learning about best practices in diagnosis and management of infection. Clearly, if you get that right, then you're well on your way to, to a good stewardship program. And they broke this into, into two periods, January and February of 2018, and then November and December of 2018. And as part of this uh, program, this study, they looked at the onset of C. difficile on a quarterly basis, and this was reported as a secondary outcome. I think this is a, a, a really interesting way of focusing us on how we make antibiotic decisions. And it's, it may seem simplistic, but these, these um, ideas really do gel. So first of all, you know, a diagnosis. Sounds simple, but still, you have to determine whether that patient has an infection and do, do they require antibiotics? That's your first point. Cultures versus an, an empirical therapy. Do I order appropriate cultures before starting antibiotics? But if I want to start with empiric therapy, what should I start with? As soon as you've got information from the lab, then you either A, stop the, uh, the antibiotic, or move to a narrow decision or an oral antibiotic choice. And then finally, how long do you give the antibiotics for? Three days, five days, seven days? We have mixed guidance on that, but uh, I've always believed that you know, as short as possible is, is a good way to prevent the, the resistant bugs coming to the, to the fore. Well, what happened in the, the uh, 2018 study? It was shown that um, a significant improvement was observed in antibiotic use actually decreased by 30 days of therapy per 1,000 patients. Um, and that was statistically significant. Interestingly, the incidence of hospital-acquired C. diff decreased by 19.5%, again, statistically significantly. So that, that amalgamation of teaching and reporting back and auditing, all of those came together to show an almost 20% reduction in C. diff over that, those two periods in 2018. And now I'm going to touch on what's called a scoping review. Uh, 
If Dale, you have the, the question about network meta-analysis, I've yet to work out what a scoping review is. Um, but nevertheless, these, these reviews are a new way of looking at the, the, the literature on, on certain topics. Um, and this group from, from the UK uh, analyzed all the peer-reviewed articles pertaining to antibiotic stewardship and the effect that it has on C. diff and Klebsiella pneumoniae. And they looked at these studies for the eight-year period in 2010 to 2018. And they really wanted to focus on infection prevention, which is obviously part of stewardship as well as modifying antibiotic use. And they wanted to look at specifically the impact on C. difficile and carbophenone-resistant pneumoniae. And the 34 studies that they uh, included in this particular uh, scoping review included a whole range of, of um, approaches to modifying our behavior. So education, surveillance and screening, consultations, audits, policies and protocols, environment measures, bundles that go towards infection um, control and infection prevention, as well as providing notifications and alerts. Those are critical in making sure everybody is aware of what's going on in their, in their setting. And they looked to identify outcomes such as antibiotic use, resistance rates, risk reduction, adherence to contact precautions. I know that sounds simple, but you know, that's the, one of the best ways to, uh, to, to reduce the transmission of C. diff, hospital stay, and, and time savings. Um, the interventions tend to be multifaceted. So yeah, you've heard of some of the strategies that I mentioned before, involving two or more strategies that clearly goes towards a, a more comprehensive approach to um, infection management. The most common approach for CDI was the use of audits and feedback. So let's see how someone is doing and tell them how well or not they've done. And people will usually respond to that sort of um, positive approach. And often that involved uh, the pharmacist discussing and reviewing the antibiotics that have been used by that physician and feeding back to them that they work, that they have done something different. And those, that sort of positive feedback is always appreciated. And in some situations, I don't know how many, I can't remember, but the EMR systems were used in these different institutions to show that this data is available. You just need to know where to look. And the combination of audits with educational sessions really did help to, to drive people towards better use of antibiotics. And as I say, there are a plethora of other combinations were used. I think this paper alone could constitute a talk in itself. Um, and when they looked at, at multi-site collaborations, they saw there was infection prevention bundles that were developed that were effective. These bundles, I'm sure we're all very familiar with these in the COVID era, you know, PPEs, isolation, single rooms, all of those things clearly contributed to reducing the incidence of not just C. diff, but also antibiotic-resistant organisms as well. Um, interestingly, a couple of quasi-experiments replaced hospital linens with biocidal copper oxide bed sheets. It's fairly complicated. And then we have, they also have pillowcases, washcloths, and towels. So um, next time you're going shopping for new bedding, think about biocidal copper oxide bed sheets. From these various studies, they, um, they demonstrated 
clear impacts on the interventions on, interventions on the risk of C. diff and other healthcare-associated infections. I've already mentioned the, the impact on antibiotic resistance. Well, if you can impact the, the incidence of, let's say, Klebsiella pneumonia, pneumonia and pneumonia as an adjunct to the risk of CD, CDI, then that clearly is a, a double success or more. Overall, there was an 83% reduction in CDI over a 12-month period. That's a considerable reduction in what is a problematic infection. But one of the sites um, just focused in, in a, an oncology group, they conducted a study for 24 months, but, and they didn't see any change in the risk of CDI, nor any associated mortality. So clearly it's a, it's a site-specific effect, but I think a lot depends upon how you manage your antibiotic package with some of these particular at-risk patients. Interestingly, the interventions to manage CDI had a 25% risk reduction for the other healthcare-associated infections. They had no difference on, on, on mortality. So we're seeing a, a trend here, I think, that antibiotic stewardship does seem to have an effect on, on CDI. So a synopsis of, of those put that approach from those 34 papers. Uh, a systematic review of the behavioural changes identified three components as being critical for the interventions that target behavioural change. So are you, are you capable of making the change? Is it actually meaningful? Are you able to, to institute feedback mechanisms and so forth? Is there an opportunity for you to introduce these changes and obviously um, measure those changes? And then finally, motivation. It's the sort of what's in it for me approach. What is the motivation for all people involved in the healthcare system? What is the motivation for them as an individual to implement all the different components of ASP? Um, but clearly we still have some gaps on the application of what I'm going to call the current adherence to behavioural changes and the adherence to infection protection and antibiotic stewardship programmes. And just to show that it's not a US phenomenon, uh, institution in, I think it was actually in Athens, uh, over a four-year period, this large tertiary institution, over a thousand beds, they actually prepared antibiotic use and various outcomes over over two periods. Sorry about the background. 2015 to 2016, and there were significant reductions in antibiotic use observed for the anti-colistin, carbapenems, quinolones, and tigacycline. All of those are recognised to be uh, selective in, in the in incidence of C. diff. They also noted that they saw lower resistance rates with three of the key uh, organisms that are involved in HCAs, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, Flebsiella pneumoniae, and Vank-resistant enterococci. So that if you reduce the antibiotic pressure, you saw the resistance rates also diminish. Interestingly, they looked at other reductions, and they saw a shortened length of stay, lower incidence of C. diff, Antibiotic costs were reduced, and their, their final report was that ASP was successful in reducing antibiotic consumption, antibiotic costs, length of stay, and, and CDI. 
So, to bring this to a conclusion, C. diff is still a major pathogen in both the hospital and community settings. You know, we've seen the epidemiology over the last few years, and it's still a problem. Antibiotic stewardship programs have been implemented in almost all U.S. hospitals. And since I, the, the map that I showed you earlier, the numbers of, of you know, participating institutions has risen quite significantly. I think perhaps towards C. diff, an important extension is occurring in that ASP programs are now being implemented in long-term care and nursing homes and other community settings. As we know, uh, a large proportion of C. diff infections originate in the community. If we can manage antibiotic use in the community, it should go some way to, to reducing those infections. So it's going to take a combination of appropriate antibiotics and infection control methods to eliminate, in, in brackets, if ever, CDI. And I think over the past decade, there have been some really positive outcomes as the seven CDI, CDC core elements have been embraced. I think further progress will occur. On that note, I'd like to hand it back to Dr. Johnson, and thank you for your time. And again, thanks, Nancy and the team. I'd like to introduce Weep Klaus Smits from Leiden University in, in the Netherlands. Uh, Weep's talk is entitled Metronidazole for the Treatment of C. difficile on the way out, question mark. Thank you, Stu, for the introduction. It's a pleasure to be here today and to talk about some of the recent developments with respect to an old antimicrobial. We've heard a lot about new antimicrobials already, so I figured we'll put a little bit of balance by uh, and talking a bit about an old antibiotic. So I have nothing to declare with respect to the contents of this uh, presentation. So metronidazole, as you probably are aware of, has for a long time been a staple in the treatment of C. difficile infections. Um, but recent years have seen the development of uh, new drugs and also careful comparisons with, for instance, drugs like vancomycin. And from these studies, it has appeared that metronidazole is actually has a lower efficacy than uh, those drugs. In addition to that, there is a trend of decreasing efficacy over time. So in recent years, uh, the efficacy seems to be even a little bit lower um, than in previous years. Resulting from this has been a guideline change for both the ITSA-SHE as well as ESCMID since uh, this year, um, where metronidazole is no longer indicated as first-line treatment. Yet, there is no clear evidence uh, for the involvement uh, of resistance or an increase in resistance, despite the fact that these drugs have been used for so many years. And here I just want to point out that the definitions of, of resistance with respect to metronidazole differ depending on um, which breakpoint you use, either CLSI or UCAS. Now, metronidazole resistance is complicated, and that is in part because um, it's not a drug that is uh, routinely tested for in the clinic. Um, and potentially, as a result of this, um, major differences has, have been reported in uh, resistance rates. So they differ for C. difficile between zero and almost 20%. And as I pointed out, the definitions are not uniform. And in addition, they are not tailored towards C. difficile specifically. So generally, people use the breakpoints that have been defined for anaerobes. Uh, for C. difficile, there has been unstable and inducible and heter heterogeneous resistance reported. Um, and the large differences that I refer to might have been the result of differences in methodology, um, differences in strain types, or in geographical locations. And it's further complicated by the fact that we don't really know what causes resistance in the case of C. difficile. 
And uh, for the descriptions in literature of metronidazole-resistant strains, um, these are, the descriptions have very frequently lack an appropriate, um, i.e. as isogenic comparator in these experiments. Um, so they are really more like case descriptions rather than uh, careful comparisons of a susceptible and a resistant isolate. Now that changed um, two years ago um, when we studied um, a patient with recurrent CDI due to a ribotype 20 strain. Um, and in the course of um, following this patient, we noted that there was a phenotypic switch from the strain being susceptible to metronidazole to a strain that was resistant to metronidazole. And we sequenced the strain from this patient, and we found that the sole difference between the susceptible and resistant isolates was the presence of a plasmid, a small 7 kV plasmid, which we now call PCD metro. So we went on um, to actually show that this plasmid is um, causally related to the metronidazole resistance. And we did this by manipulating it such that we can could introduce it into a laboratory strain of C. difficile. Uh, and this is a ribotype for 12 strain. And uh, you can see that if you, um, if you introduce the strain uh, into this, uh, the, the plasmid into the strain, it now is, becomes resistant. Uh, you can see this in the middle panel on the upper right, um, whereas it, it's not the case if you just take a part of the plasmid. So there's really something on the plasmid that is responsible for the resistance. And uh, if you then compare the laboratory strain before we introduced um, the, uh, uh, the plasmid, then you can see here um, that with increasing amounts of metronidazole, uh, growth is pretty much arrested. Whereas if you have the plasmid present, you can grow it all the way up to eight micrograms per uh, mil and it still grows fine. So um, the, the plasmid is not only found in this ribotype 20 strain, which we identified in our uh, medical school. Um, in fact, we um, uh, asked for strains to be sent to us from uh, other publications that describe metronidazole resistant strains. And in the vast majority of cases, we could show that this plasmid is present. And this is the case in ribotype 10 strains. So it's very abundant in non-toxinogenic strains like ribotype 010. But importantly, we also found it in a ribotype 027 strain, which is one of the epidemic types. Uh, so it seems to be present in diverse PCR ribotypes. Since then, we have implemented in our routine diagnostics laboratory a PCR that screens for the presence of the plasmid. And in doing so, we were actually able to identify uh, in our diagnostics routine uh, strains that demonstrate this stable resistance to metronidazole. So we now have uh, identified it not only in a PCR toxigenic ribotype 020 strain, but more recently also in a ribotype 5 strain. So here I just want to take uh, a moment to reflect on the fact that this uh, metronidazole resistance is plasmid-based. Um, because I think plasmids in general have been overlooked as an important factor in the pathogenesis of C. difficile. Um, studies from our lab and others over the past years have shown that plasmids actually occur in a large number of C. difficile strains, likely upwards of 10%, both from humans and from animals, um, and that uh, plasmids fall into different so-called plasmid families. For most of these, we don't know um, what the phenotypic consequences of plasmid carriage. But besides metronidazole, plasmids have now also been implicated in re reduced susceptibility to vancomycin, possibly related to treatment failure. And uh, it has also been hypothesized that certain plasmids might carry toxin genes, so toxin B and binary toxin, in several clades of C. difficile.
from all these studies, um, indirect evidence has been accumulating that transmission occurs in host during treatment. So not all the cases of metronidazole resistance are explained by PCD Metro. We also found strains um, which tested as resistant to metronidazole blacklasmid. And in studies that I don't have time to describe in, in a lot of detail, we uh, showed that this is actually due to the presence of a medium component, more specifically heme. And heme uh, incorporation in, into the medium um, results in elevated levels, uh, MIT levels for metronidazole. And this is relatively specific for metronidazole because we don't see it um, in, uh, uh, for instance, uh, when we do an e-test for vancomycin. And this has been confirmed also in independent studies from other labs, such as the Herbal Lab. And uh, what is interesting is that their work actually also provides a possible link to treatment failure. So they observed that strains that under these conditions uh, with an MIC greater than one milligram per liter, um, they are more frequently found in patients that failed on metronidazole treatment. So there may be a link, even though these strains technically would not qualify as being called resistant. Now, plasmids um, are, can be transmissible and chromosomes are not. Um, but from several studies, we now also have um, a clear grasp that some of the chromosomal genes may be involved in resistance to metronidazole. Uh, from our own lab, uh, we've shown that um, a SNP mutation in heme-responsive gene HSMA um, is associated um, with uh, medium-dependent resistance uh, uh, against metronidazole, both in strains that carry the uh, PCD metroplasmids and that don't. And from a large US study, um, based on the Modify 1 and 2 uh, uh, clinical studies, it was found that a gene that has similarity to a so-called nitroimidazole reductase or NIM gene uh, was also associated uh, with metronidazole resistance. And this was across different PCR ribotypes. The HSMA SNP was specifically for PCR ribotype of 10. So HSMA has been shown to bind heme, um, and it's possible that this MIM gene also binds heme and in that way provides a logical explanation for why heme is so important in antimicrobial anti susceptibility testing for CDIF. So to come back to my uh, original question, is metronidazole on the way out? Um, I think it could be because of its inferior treatment, its inferior treatment modality, and we now know of several possible resistance pathways, and some of these are even transmissible, uh, so are particular concern. But on the other hand, the link with treatment failure is still fairly unclear. Uh, if we look at compliance with the guidelines, it's, fre it's frequently suboptimal. So in the graph um, here, you can actually see that uh, after the guideline change, uh, the use of metronidazole actually only went down marginally. And in addition, in some situations, it may not be feasible to use a recommended first-line drug uh, because of reasons such as price or availability, for instance. So maybe it's on the way out, but it's certainly not out of the door yet, I would say. So the take-home messages from my talk today are um, that current guidelines um, are based on reduced clinical efficacy and therefore no longer recommend the use of metronidazole. Um, there are better treatment modalities available in the form of vancomycin or fedexomycin, for instance. And that we now have multiple pathways for metronidazole resistance as Vdifacil described, but we don't quite understand yet how they work 
and what the contributions are to treatment failure. It's not so clear cut yet. Um, but the two um, mechanisms that I highlighted are transferable plasmids as well as chromosomal single nucleotide polymorphisms. And a final important point from my perspective is that we really need tailored susceptibility testing with a special focus on the content of heme in this media uh, in order to, um, to get to grips with what, what metronidazole resistance actually means um, in uh, for patient treatment. So it is key to integrate data, not only on AST, on phylogeny, on the genome sequences of the Cedetasville strains, um, as well as treatment outcome. And ideally, we'd want to integrate this also with patient genetics to see what the contribution is of the patient genome uh, to treatment uh, success. So with that, I'll wrap up. I'll thank all the people that are involved in the work, in particular in the plasmid work, um, both of Bastian Hornum and a PhD student of mine, Ilse Buchhout, um, but as well many of our national and international collaborators and the people from our lab. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in this week for C. diff, spores, and more. Be sure to join your host, Nancy Kerala, again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, that's 1 p.m. Eastern Time, for another edition of our program on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. None of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together.